0: Let's remain standing as we pray. Spirit of God, breathe on your church. Pour out your presence. Speak through your word. We pray in every nation, Christ be known. Our hope and our salvation, Christ alone. Amen. 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 Please do take your seats. And this morning, we're jumping straight back into our series that we've entitled The Truth We Hold. So please do open up your Bible to Timothy, chapter four, page 1197. And as we open chapter four, we're walking into an atmosphere of great solemnity. Verse one of chapter four. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. The task that Timothy is about to be given is given in the presence of the divine, And the charge to all all those that lead churches today is not merely a role or a responsibility or a job description, but a calling that is given in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the judge and the coming king. And as we enter these verses, we can pick up the sense of urgency, of importance, of weight. These are matters of life and death and of ultimate significance. Timothy is to minister and lead in light of Christ's return and the judgment to come. And God's evaluation of a ministry is what counts. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, we read that church leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. And I know That I must give an account to God for the way that I lead his flocks at Cornerstone Church. And that rightly shapes the way that I lead. And the charge to pastors is electrified by three realities about Jesus, which Timothy would see at full voltage. Jesus is the judge. He's the one who will return and he is the king of his kingdom. And so what is at the heart of the charge for Timothy and all those that would follow as church leaders from generation to generation? Verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's the primary concern that drives everything else Paul says to Timothy Someone has described preaching the word as the signature of Christian ministry. And if we here at Cornerstone don't preach the word in the next 30 years, then, well, by 2053, Cornerstone will barely be a church. We won't have that sign up all the time, but we need to be reminded of it. And to preach means to declare or proclaim so it's not merely a transfer of information from my head to your head. And sometimes sometimes I'll talk about teaching the Bible, but I wonder if that's domesticating it a bit, making it merely an intellectual task. Preaching the word has a richness and a depth and a prophetic edge that, that can't really be reduced to teaching the Bible. And what's to be preached? Well, the word, the truth we hold. The authentic message of the gospel passed from Paul to Timothy and now for us for us, written down as completed scripture. The whole counsel of God. And as pastors, we're, we're not to preach ourselves, but God's word. Not idea, our ideas, but God's word. That's why at Cornerstone, we, we tend to preach through whole books of the Bible, lots of different types of, books in the Bible over the last years we've over the last year we've been in series in Revelation, in the opening chapters of Genesis, in the Gospels, Song of Songs and now to Timothy, all very different types of books, but all God's word. All Souls Langham Place is a large church, Anglican church in London. It's the church where John Stott was rector for many years. The church building is right next to the BBC uh, building. And I'm told that when the preacher steps up to preach in the pulpit at that church, there's a a small sign on the lectern or on the pulpit that only the preacher can see. And as the preacher steps up, they see the words, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus, a quote from the Gospels. And preaching God's word leads us to Jesus preaching god's word afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted sometimes as we pray before a service that's what we'll pray that god's word as we meet will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and the spirit of god ministers through the word of god you know i once i once asked a child in a child in this church what they thought my job was And do you know what the reply was? They said, You stand at the front and tell people what to do. Well, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Well, what I should be doing is there in verse 2 Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. And careful instruction. Pastors are to preach the word when we're inclined to and when we're not. Whether we're more introverted or more extroverted, whether we're encouraged or discouraged, we're to preach the word when it's convenient and when it's costly. We're to preach the word when listeners are hungry for God's word and when listeners don't care or aren't listening. We're to preach God's word when the society is receptive and when it's hostile or indifferent. And it helps for us to have a a good sense of the season that we are in as a church, the season that we're in as a society. And let me say that does shape what we choose to, to preach on. I don't just randomly pick books of the Bible. We do think about it and pray and discern what would be helpful for us in any particular season. And you'll see from verse 2, there are three vital elements to preaching the word, to correct, rebuke, and encourage. And it's easy to leave out some of those elements. It might depend on our disposition, which we might tend to leave out. As one experienced pastor said to other pastors, if you enjoy correcting and rebuking, you are likely not fit for the ministry. But if you do not do it, you are a shirker. I was at a Christian conference center a a few years ago now, maybe five years ago, on a conference. And I took a walk around the gardens during one of the breaks in between sessions. And I don't know if you ever have those moments where God just gets underneath your radar and without warning challenges you in a way that you didn't see coming. Well, it was one of those kind of moments. I was, it was in between sessions, I was enjoying the fresh air, admiring the trees and the plants, and then I spotted a slate sign on a tree. And on this slate sign, well, I assume it would would contain some kind of nice inspirational pleasantries or something, but what it actually said was this. Oh God, forgive me for my calculated efforts to serve you only when it is convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Well, Carolyn Lacey points out that pastors are to correct thinking that disagrees with the word, to rebuke behavior that is inconsistent with the word, and encourage godliness in obedience to the word. And I mentioned John Stott before. Well, he pointed out that in any church at any time, there will be those who are tormented by doubts and need to be Convinced by correct arguments. There are others who have fallen into sin and need to be rebuked and restored. And there are others who are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged. Well, it's God's word, not my ideas, that does all of this and more. And pastors are to to preach the word with great patience and careful instruction. Now, obviously, as we've been going through, through this letter of 2 Timothy, the letter is written to a Christian pastor, and for the first applications are to those of us in church leadership now or in the future. But I want to make it really clear that this letter has significant implications for every one of us because we're all part of this church or another church. And it gives us frameworks for what we need to be valuing and encouraging and investing in as a church, what we should treasure, what we should pass on to the next generation. And Timothy was looking in three directions as he outworked his calling. Firstly, to Christ, the coming judge and king, as we've seen. And secondly, he was to look upon the contemporary scene that he lived in. For him, that was first century Ephesus. For us, twenty-first century Nottingham. You know, the testimony of the Bible and indeed the whole of human history is that ever since the fall of our first parents, people move away from the truth. We naturally move away from the truth. Our hearts are, as the hymn says, prone to wander from those safe ancient paths. So look at me with verse look with me at verse three and four. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Those verses were written in the context of first century Roman Empire, but They're just as relevant and just as true in any cultural context at any given time in history. Those words are true of our Western, consumeristic, postmodern society. And following our desires without restraint or beyond the the God-given boundaries that he's given us, means that, of course, we will turn to those who confirm us us in our pursuit of love of self, of money, of pleasure, and power. People prefer false teachers who peddle an easier gospel. We all prefer to be told what we want to hear, don't we? We're all prone to this. Well, the standards by which we should judge teaching is whether or not it matches up with what God's word says. That should be the standards that we judge teaching by, but so often the standards seem to end up being our own subjective taste. And in any cultural expression, the main forms of idolatry are usually worshiping money, sex, and power. The way that it's packaged will vary, but at the root of it, is always some form of distortion of these three things. Taking God's good gifts and worshipping them. Worshipping created things instead of the creator. Breaking through the boundaries that God has placed around his good gifts. In the language of these verses, turning, turning from the truth to myths. Myths and it is a popular myth that leadership is about power and strength it is a popular myth that humans can choose every aspect of our identity it is a popular myth that that following jesus can make you healthy and wealthy Shaylin is a pastor and a an, uh, performing artist from the United States. And he describes his songs as lyrical theology, helping us learn good theology through the songs he writes. And the lyrics of one track summarize well the danger of false teaching. Now, this is a, a hip hop track, but obviously, I'm just going to read the lyrics. Okay, so they are not have quite the same impact. But he's talking about false teaching. False teaching. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. I hear it all the time when they speak on the block. Even unbelievers are shocked how they're fleecing the flock. It should be obvious then, Yet yeah, I'll explain why it's sin. Peep in the Bible, it's in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. It talks about how the desire for riches has left many souls on fire in stitches, mired in ditches. Tell me, who would teach you to pursue as a goal the very thing that the Bible says will ruin your soul? You may want to hear that Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy. That is the prosperity gospel, gospel, and it is a myth. Turn your ears away from the lie that you can achieve a crown without a cross. Turn from false teaching to the truth we hold. We heard earlier about the great big MAF weekend, weekend where we can go on flight simulators, where we can see a plane in the car park. I'm still feeling a bit nervous from that landing earlier. I don't know about you. Man, my heart was going. Well, you heard about the great MAF weekend, but actually... We're going to start our flight training right now, okay? I'm going to begin our training for flying a light aircraft in order to illustrate these verses. So are you ready for takeoff? Now, I am not a pilot, but Andy Simmons, whom you'll meet in a few weeks' time, he is, and I've checked what I'm about to say with him, and he says, it's all right. Okay, so we're going to learn this together. So you can initially learn to fly a light aircraft by operating under visual flight rules. So let's say that together. Visual flight rules. This is good. Well done. Which means you can safely fly an aircraft when it's good, clear weather. And you fly by... You fly... You know, you're doing, yeah, I suppose you're holding like that, aren't you? You you fly by looking around you at the ground, the landmarks, the horizons and so on, visual visual things that you can see, what you can see out of the cockpit window. So that's the first stage. Then a further stage is for you to be trained in all of the instruments on an aircraft, uh, which then enables you to fly in instrument meteorological conditions. So let's say that together. Instrument meteorological conditions, a little bit trickier, isn't it? Which, in layperson's terms, means you can fly safely when the weather deteriorates and when you haven't got any of those visual reference points out of the cockpit windows. It means you can fly safely through bad weather by looking at what your instruments tell you and by adjusting your controls accordingly. Well, a study was conducted which took a number of pilots who had not had this instrument training. It took them into a flight simulator with the instructions to keep their simulated flight under control. And during the flight, they were taken into thick clouds and stormy weather. So no longer did these pilots have any visual reference points. How do you think they got on? Well, in the study that was undertaken, every single one of those pilots crashed the aircraft. The average time taken from entering the bad weather to the plane crashing was just 178 seconds. So pilots are now told when the weather closes in like that, you have 178 seconds to live. You have 178 seconds to live. And can you think of the main dangers that were identified? In this study, the pilots experienced... Spatial disorientation. They couldn't see the visual reference points they usually had, the landmarks, the horizon, the the ground. And they became disorientated. Other pilots uh, underestimated the danger they were in, whereas others overestimated their own ability to cope in flying in bad weather. brothers and sisters, when it comes to our lives, our lives are not lived out in simulators. Our lives are real. And, And we cannot spend all of our lives flying in good weather on clear days There will be times when in our lives we, as it were, fly into cloud. When the fog suddenly envelops our lives. Or when human myths of one kind or another surround us and confuse us. And when that happens, we too face those three dangers... We will experience spiritual disorientation. We might not be able to see the the visual reference points that we've relied on in better weather. That might be some cultural traditions that have been influenced by Judeo Christianity but are now being rejected. Or it might be other visual reference points, or health, or family our jobs, or just the stability of life. It won't last long, we might think, we'll soon be out the other side, and we too underestimate the danger that we are in. Or we might think, oh, it's okay, I can cope with a bit of cloud, we might tell ourselves, and we overestimate our ability to cope. Or when the weather closes in, we have 178 seconds to live. When we're flying into bad weather in our lives, we will be disorientated. So what's the lesson for us? Well, the lesson is to trust our instruments, not our intuition, or our desires. The lesson is to trust God's word, not human myths. Trust God's word, not the intuition that our culture constantly conditions us to have and to trust. And not our desires that can call us away from those safe, ancient paths. But trust God's word. Why? Because we have 178 seconds to live. These are matters of life and death. Now, of course, what needs to be in place for us to be able to trust our instruments? Well, we need to be able to read them and understand them and interpret them properly and then respond accordingly. And friends, that can't happen when the, when at the moment that the cloud hits. At that point, we have 178 seconds to live. At that point, we can't take a t- quick tutorial. No, we have to learn how to read our instruments in the good weather when we don't actually need them so much, in a sense. Now, you may be in gathered worship services like this, Sunday by Sunday, and sometimes you might wonder what relevance a particular sermon might have for you. Or you might be at home in the week and read your Bible and just not be able to see any immediate connection between what you're reading or what you're being taught and your life that week. And there may not be any immediate connection. There may not be. But see it like this. Sunday by Sunday here in gathered worship, you are learning how to read and understand and interpret your instruments. God's word, the Bible. So that when the moment comes, when the storms do envelop you, when you have 178 seconds to live, you can fly safely. Because even in the worst of weather, the darkest of clouds, you are able to trust your instruments and not your intuition. And you will be guided safely through And that gives us the perspective of eternity. Verse five, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I thought this week that one way of summarizing what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, where well, you can just imagine Paul sending this kind of type of poster to Timothy or, or maybe a mug with that, with that on, saying just keep calm and preach the word. Timothy would face complex situations, the temptation to give up, the pressure of firefighting and constantly managing crises. But in all this, Timothy and pastors like him are to keep our heads in all situations, not be blown away by every new fad, but keeping calm, being stable, enduring hardship, doing the work of an evangelist, discharging all the duties of our ministry. And if nothing else, please do pray for your church leaders. And thank you for your prayers for me and the other leaders here. We really appreciate it and benefit from it. And do pray for other church leaders you know as well. We're, we, I and the other leaders here are very blessed to lead in a loving, supportive church that is a wonderful place to be. Other, other leaders lead in much harder context than we do. And then Paul shares his own example and experience. It's full of imagery and metaphors. Look at verse six and seven. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. So he knows the, he's gonna, uh, I've kept the faith. He knows he's gonna soon depart this life. And then verse eight. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me On that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I hope that you've got the message throughout this series that following Jesus means following Jesus on the path of suffering and then glory. And that's where we've placed the emphasis of the cross before the crown. And in this series, we've majored on being on the suffering path, being on the way of the cross. But I do want to be really clear that there is a crown that will come. Glory awaits those that follow Jesus. It's just not in this life. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel preached by false teachers. but we believe in something better. We believe in a gospel of superabundance. There is a crown. It's just a case of when, not if. And it's not in this life, but it's in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus appears again to judge. So let me be very clear in how we apply this. If we are following Jesus, we are not living our best life now. We are not living our best life now. Live your best life now might be a popular hashtag, but it's really poor theology. And it will only let you down. So if you feel like you are not living your best life now, then good. Because if you're a Christian, you're not. Our best life is still to come. And it's more glorious than we could ever imagine. Our best life is the life that is foreseen at the end of the book of revelation and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them there will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god he will wipe every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older, old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Our best life is still to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Almighty God, we confess that our hearts are prone to wonder. And Lord, I want to pray for those here today who are enveloped in the clouds of life, surrounded by disorientating fog of one kind or another. Oh, Lord, please strengthen them and by your spirit, help them to trust your word and not human myths. And Lord God, we praise you that there is a crown to come, that we have a better life to look forward to. that there is a glory that awaits. Come, Lord Jesus.